Hey, Stemis, a quick announcement from Emlyn Gremlin here. So in this episode, Emma's audio sounds a little echoey because she was she had packed all her stuff and so was recording in a room just full of boxes. So not great for the acoustics. But in the future, uh, we'll all be settled now that we're all moving to our various locations. And so hopefully our sound quality will be a little more even. So please bear with us. It's a great episode. Thanks. By circa 
so she from an early age she just was used to being like the only woman in a class yeah essentially so she graduated from high school then at 15 wow she was saying that back in the day there were only 11 grades so yeah she like was very smart and i think skipped a bit yeah also it just you got done earlier back in those days yeah that makes sense and she knew she wanted to go to university, uh, and both her aunts on her mom's side had gone to university. One was a doctor, and the other one was a lawyer. Okay. Uh, so she had a little bit of an idea about what university was like. Uh, both her aunts didn't really practice, so they weren't very they weren't active doctors and lawyers. They thought that their lives had been enriched by this added education and skill. Yeah, that's awesome. So she knew she wanted to do science, but really had no idea what that entailed yeah. going into college. Yeah, that's so, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, you don't have to know everything. <laughs> but luckily, by chance, she met this young parasitology professor uh, named Dr. Anthony. Well, I think she's like 15 and he's an adult. So I oh, don't wait, think it's I a... I forgot about that. <laughs> she's a- he's not that young and it it's not... It's all. It's okay, everybody. Okay, okay. But uh, his name was Dr. Anthony Kingscott, and after learning of her interest in biology, he gave her an overview of the field and the order of animals and gave her suggestions for classes to take once she got to university. So he really helped make her feel more comfortable about what she should do once she got to university. Nice. Yeah. And so Frances then went to Victoria College, where she took biology, zoology, and some specialized biology courses. And then during her senior year, at the suggestion of a friend who was a medical student, Frances enrolled in biochemistry and pharmacology during, yeah, during the senior year. And pharmacology is the study of the way that chemicals, mostly drugs, act in the body. So when she graduated, uh, or then she graduated with a bachelor's of science. Yay. Yay. (laughs) But the... (laughs) But this was at the depth of the depression, so there were almost no jobs, lab oh jobs available. Oh and the gosh. ones that did exist were primarily filled by men. Right. Great. And because of this, she yeah. <laughs> so because of this, she realized that her options were to go to grad school or remain unemployed. Well, I guess grad so, school. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a pretty clear uh, decision. Yeah, I mean that's still kind of how things go sometimes. You're like, dang. Yeah, we're like, what else job. am I gonna do? So go back to guess. school. <laughs> yep. So she wanted to join the biochemistry department to just to study endocrinology, but the department had no available space, and so she was directed to the uh, pharmacology department oh. to work with Doctor. Uh, Stela, S-T-E-H-L-E. Okay. Stel, I don't know. I don't know. Who said, quote, fine, then you can be my graduate student for a year. I am not very good with grad students, or I don't enjoy them very much, but I would be very happy to give you all the help I can. Okay. <laughs> so that's, I don't know how encouraging that is, but I don't think she had a lot of options. Yeah. Uh, so in his lab, she worked on the pituitary gland. Oh. Which acts as a conductor, essentially a conductor of the body by secreting, like, a, a orchestra conductor. Wait, uh, by secreting okay. an orchestra conductor? <laughs> <laughs> Let me repeat. The pituitary <laughs> gland, it acts kind of like an orchestra conductor for an orchestra. Yeah. In that it secretes hormones that travel to other glands in areas of the body and tells those organs what to do so it's instructing the body and the organs what to do does that make sense yeah i mean i'm just still imagining like a little tiny or orchestra conductor coming out of a gland in the body or like all these little like blech, like oozing out anyway Ew. <laughs> yeah that's funny so francis says that Quote, with Dr. Stell, I studied the effect of the posterior pituitary on the water balance of frogs. And that was the topic of my thesis. For a year, I sat surrounded by frogs in little cages set in water. I I would lift them up, dry them, (laughs) weigh them, 
inject them, put them back in the water, and then weigh them in 15 to 20 minute intervals wow. for four hours. Oh my gosh. I would get the most beautiful curves on graphs and I was able to find out which part of the extract caused this particular effect. That's cool. Yeah. So she and was so she dissecting got her- lots of frogs. Yeah, and just like surrounded by frogs in water calling, I would imagine. Oh, cool. Just imagine her like in a little room surrounded by frogs. Cool. So she got her master's in a year. Oh my gosh. Pretty speedy. And stayed on as a research assistant because, again, there were no jobs. It was still the Depression. She could have gotten seven master's degrees during my PhD. <laughs> Do you ever think <laughs> like that? Like, uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a dangerous thought to <laughs> break it into You're right, that. you're right. I can't go there. You can't go there. <laughs> <laughs> but then doctors suggested that Francis apply to work with Dr. Eugene Geiling at Mm. the University of Chicago to continue to study the pituitary gland. Uh, And so she did. Quickly, she got a special letter airmailed to her that read, Dear Mr. Oldham, if you can be in Chicago by March 1st, you may have the research assistantship for four months and then a scholarship to see you through a PhD. Please wire immediate decision. Mr.? They didn't know? So... Clearly, he had confused the female name Francis with an E for the male name Francis with an I. Uh And so Francis asked Dr. Stell if she should write back and explain his error. And Dr. Stell said, don't be ridiculous. Accept the job, sign your name, put miss in brackets afterwards and go. Yeah. Good idea. So, (laughs) yeah. So she did. That's so Um, great. And Dr. Guiling was very conservative and old fashioned. Uh, but agreed to have Francis with an E as his first graduate student. <laughs> and for her PhD... That is so funny. I mean, I think it was too late. Yeah. I think he was just like, well, all right. <laughs> and for her PhD, she looked at the anatomy and pharmacology of the posterior pituitary gland nice. in the nine-banded armadillo. Cool. And, and why, you might ask, the nine-banded armadillo? Oh, yeah, wait, why? Yeah, I did ask that, <laughs> uh, let the record show I asked why. <laughs> exactly. Uh, because they wanted to determine what, if any, hormones were secreted by the posterior pituitary gland versus the uh, anterior pituitary gland. Wait. So essentially, most animals have an anterior and posterior pituitary gland uh-huh. that are connected. Oh. Making it difficult to determine the contribution of the posterior pituitary gland versus the anterior. Gotcha. I didn't know that. They were, like, so connected, I guess. Yeah, so the armadillo has the anterior and posterior pituitary gland completely separated. Armadillos are so weird. I know, man. I love armadillos. There's so many armadillos in Georgia, more than I've ever seen in Texas, which is surprising to me. I saw one at BFL the other night with Zach. It was really cute. cute. Sniffing around. Yeah. Didn't notice us because they're so blind. Yeah. (laughs) They're kind of dumb, <laughs> but they're cute. They are cute, and they roll up like little roly-polies. Yeah. Doing this work, she received her PhD in 1938, and then for her postdoc studied the development of the armadillo to determine why these two parts of the pituitary were separate. Mm. Okay, we're going to transition a little bit. At this time, okay. there were very little drug regulations. Right. In 1906, they had passed the Food and Drug Act, which essentially just made companies label if they had, like, heroin or other addictive substances in them. Good. Good. I mean... (laughs) Which is a good first step, but... Yeah. uh, A little limited. Uh, So funny. In 1933, sulfanilamide was introduced as a wonder drug that could cure pneumonia and staph infections. Oh, However, the pills were large and disagreeable, and so... One manufacturer decided to try and make a liquid solution of sulfanilamide. It would be easier for children to take and more appealing. Uh-huh. However, sulfanilamide would neither dissolve in water or alcohol. Oh. But the company found that it would dissolve in something called diethylene glycol. Okay. So they added a little cherry flavoring and some pink coloring <gasps> and sold this new liquid drug. Oh, my god. Quickly, however, fatal- fatality reports started pouring in. Oh, my gosh. 
1938, just as Frances was finishing up her PhD, the FDA called in Dr. Guiling to help them out with determining why all these children were dying. <gasps> so they this was before they, like, tested drugs on animals, I guess? Or even in people, like clinical trials? I think they, at this point, were doing that, but there wasn't as much strict regulation, so they probably had done that on the other form of the drug, but then putting it just uh, into a liquid right. form didn't require them to do all of that stuff. Oh my gosh. So what a time. I know. So Guiling set up a variety of animal experiments with the drug, and each of the grad students in his lab helped conduct these animal studies. Yeah. The results were clear. It was the dissolving agent, diethylene glycol, that was killing the children. Gotcha. So diethylene glycol is also known as antifreeze. Oh. <laughs> so that's what they oh were dissolving. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, here, children, just drink this <laughs> lovely antifreeze. <laughs> so it's red. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Oh my god. I'm not laughing at the children. No, no, Sorry. of course not. I'm just laughing at the craziness. No, yeah, exactly. Because, like, <laughs> we now used to say antifreeze, and it's like, yeah, you definitely shouldn't feed yeah. that to children. Oh my gosh. But I don't think they knew that at the time. Of course, yeah. Because mm-hmm. we knew nothing. We knew nothing. nothing. You, we knew nothing, Jon Snow. Yes. So, this was called the Elixir of Sulfanilamide Tragedy, and it led to the passage of the 1938 Food and Drug Law, which required that new drugs actually give evidence that they are safe. Yeah. So, that seems like we're going in the right direction. Yeah. All right. So, now at this time, it was still the Depression, and she still couldn't find a job. Oh, my God. But lo and behold, World War II started, and we know what that means. Women (laughs) were accepted into science. I just can't believe (laughs) every, like, every other story is like, and then she got a job because of World War II. (laughs) I know. This is the biggest, like, pro-World War II podcast. I know, I know. Uh, like, what a tragic time, but what a great time for women in science. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway, good. I'm glad she finally got a job. She finally got a job. And because it was World War II, there was also a lack of available quinine in America. Based on right. some, whatever country, I forget what it is, but one country that, like, controls most of the quinine. Anyways, America didn't have access to a lot of quinine, uh, which is what they use as an anti-malarial drug, essentially, at that time. So a lab at the University of Chicago was assigned to try and find an alternative for malaria treatment. Cool. So Dr. Francis Oldham was then hired to help find an anti-malarial drug. They put out an open call for people to send in chemicals they thought might work on malaria. I don't think they do this now. It was just anybody, an open call call to send them drugs that they think might work against malaria. You know, I guess there probably were just a lot more home remedies then. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's kind of And small doctors. Yeah. So according to Francis, she says, uh, another chemical came from a veterinarian in Texas. It looked like oh. ink and was shipped in what looked like an ink bottle. He said he was hoping to use it to treat a plasmodium-like parasite in cattle. He also said that he had just tried it on his secretary without ill effects. Oh my god, you can't do that! <laughs> That's not okay! <laughs> and he planned next to try it on cattle. What? So his secretary is, like, beneath the cattle? Yeah, Francis said, when we read this, we said it shows the relative value placed on women and cattle in Texas at that time. That is horrific. (laughs) I know. Uh, And the secretary was just like, okay, otherwise I'm going to lose my job or something. Probably. Oh my gosh. Yep, yep, yep. You guys, wow. That's (laughs) so fucked up. (laughs) 
So this project continued on until 1945. And interestingly, they found that quinine was readily broken down in rabbits. uh, But this enzyme was not broken down as quickly in pregnant rabbits. And the embryo had no ability to break down the quinine. So this was just in some of their, like, animal tests. They also were still looking at quinine. And this is one of those things they found. And this gave Francis the first indication that a pregnant woman and the fetus may metabolize drugs differently. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. And this work was done with a colleague, Effie Kelsey, who went on to be her husband. So uh, that's why she's now known as uh, Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey. So, oh, gotcha. Dr. Kelsey. When I talk about Dr. Kelsey, I'll be talking about her, not him. Just going forward. So, however, there arose a problem now that they Mm -hmm. were married. (gasps) At that time at the University of Chicago, two members of the same family could not work in the same department. To avoid nepotism, I guess, which is good in some ways. Yeah, but it's not nepotism when you're married. Exactly. not necessarily, at least. So they decided that Francis would have... So Francis couldn't stay working there. They both couldn't stay working there, essentially, now that they were married. So they decided that Francis should go to medical school. Then, because of the scarcity of men... Uh, because it was post-World War II, there was actually a higher percentage of women in that class. There were seven of us, wow. she says. Earlier, only one or two per year would get in. Now, 35 to 50% of incoming medical school classes are women. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I'll edit that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, during her medical school, she also had two children. Wow. Yeah, she was saying that, like, they went around a quarter system, so you could pick which quarters you were off. So it actually worked oh, out okay. not too bad cool. where she would, like, you know, have your your quarters while you're pregnant and then take off a quarter and then come back on. Still a lot, still. but a little more flexibility. Yeah, I mean, you still have a baby once the pregnancy is <laughs> over. Know, it's, true. <laughs> it's true. You always got to think about that. <laughs> but then her husband was offered a faculty position at the University of South Dakota after she got her oh, cool. med degree. And so because yeah. of nepotism laws again, she couldn't join the pharmacology oh department there. So she instead took an internship at a local hospital and then received a teaching fellowship from that hospital, which allowed her to see the clinical side of medicine. Oh, that's great. And while she was there, she also worked on studying the pituitary gland of the beaver. Of a beaver? Of the beaver. I don't know why. I didn't look into it. There's too much. To, there's too much. <laughs> I just like how many, like, strange... I know, armadillo, frog, and yeah. beaver. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Now we're going to get into the meat of it. Wait, so did she have to, like, go catch beavers? I think she had a friend who would go shoot them for her. Oh, my god! I don't know. That's funny. Then, in 1960, she got a job at the Food and Drug Administration, and her husband got a job at the National Institute of Health, and so they both moved with their two kids to Washington, D.C. Very cool. At this time, she was hired as a medical... Do you know where we're going with this? Just... Um, you know, it's I've kind of changed my mind about where we're going uh-huh. like a bunch of times. Uh-huh. At first, I was thinking maybe she's a person who figured out that frogs are like full of drugs, but now I'm not sure. Okay. So we'll keep yeah. going. You let me know okay. when you think you know. Okay. okay. I'm not there yet. Okay. <laughs> So she was hired at the FDA as a medical officer, and this meant that she would review the medical part of new drug applications. Cool. She came on the 1st of August in 1960, and one of the first applications she got was for thalidomide. Oh, okay. You know what? She's been on lists that I've seen. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I just... I mean, I just remember being like, I've never heard of thalidomide, Uh but there's a lot of lists that are like, this lady figured out, you know, something about thalidomide. So you don't know what thalidomide is? (laughs) No. Okay. Okay, cool. So she was the newest person at the FDA and pretty green. And so her supervisors decided, well, this is a pretty easy one. There'll be no problems Ah. because it's a a sleeping pill. So it should be a relatively easy one. (gasps) 
And additionally, thalidomide <laughs> had already been approved and was being widely used in Canada and Europe. And so uh-huh. it was supposed to be pretty clear that this was going to go through. You know, it should be a relatively straightforward one for her. Yeah. But there's, that's weird that, why did they think it would be like easy? Because it had already been approved in Europe and uh, so they thought uh, it should be safe. Gotcha. Yeah. And it was just a sleep, like a sleeping pill. So it was supposed to make you like drowsy and stuff like that. But I don't think uh-huh. it was, it shouldn't have as many like side effects as some other more intensive drugs that do other things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the thalidomide application was reviewed by three people, a chemist, Lee Geismer, uh, a pharmacologist for the animal work, Oyam Jiro, and, a, and the medical okay. officer, which of course was Dr. Francis Kelsey. So all three of them found deficiencies in the thalidomide application and told the company so. Oh. The company brought together more information, but Francis and her team still found dis- deficiencies in what they had submitted. Interesting. Essentially, Francis's first dissatisfaction with the thalidomide application centered on the quality of the clinical reports. Because they were more in the nature of testimonials rather than well-designed, well-executed studies. Right. Okay. So she requested Merrill, the company that was producing this drug, to get better clinical studies and to provide better evidence of these various claims that they had made. Nice. Sounds reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so while they were off doing these more clinical studies, reports started coming in from Europe that permanent nerve damage uh, resulting in numbness and pain in the extremities, which is known as peripheral neuritis, might be a side effect of thalidomide use. So this nerve damage side effect led Francis and her group to ask about the use of thalidomide in pregnancy, because at uh, at this time, there was an interest in the effects of drugs on the fetus. And thalidomide was being prescribed in Europe for women with morning sickness, in addition to as a sleeping aid. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. This can't be good. The Food and Drug Administration was becoming increasingly aware of the fact that fetuses and infants could not metabolize drugs the same way as adults. Right. And Frances was interested in this because of her own practical experience with the quinine and rabbit embryo study she had done Mm -hmm. earlier during after her PhD. Wow. So when the thalidomide causing a peripheral neuritis question came up, they wanted to know what had been the experience with thalidomide in pregnancy, since it had already been used in Europe for treating morning sickness. Yeah. In the meantime, Dr. Murray, who was a representative for the Merrill company, uh, drug company, he was growing more and more frustrated. He was particularly disappointed because Christmas is apparently the season for sedatives and hypnotics, and the company had hoped that with the submission in September, the drug would be out in time for the Christmas season. Oh my god. So, like, (laughs) wait, was he just worried that they're... Why did he want it to be out for Christmas? Like, everyone's going home to see their families, and they just want to sleep, like... (laughs) Apparently, he indicated in a memo that they wished to get it out because... Thalidomide is a seasonal drug. Oh, like, huh. I don't know. Everybody needs what? a sleeping pill during Christmas time. I don't know why that's the case. Huh. Seeing Stressful your, to be around your family. Yeah, your in-laws, yes, like you that. can't sleep. Yeah. You're in someone else's bed because you're, like, visiting your folks. I don't know. <laughs> but apparently it's a Christmas drug. Huh. That's very strange. Yeah. Well, I like thinking of, like, boxes of thalidomide, like, under the tree, <laughs> Christmas tree, or, like, little thalidomide ornaments, or, Merry like, Christmas. figurines. <laughs> Baby Jesus figurine next to his thalidomide bottle. <laughs> oh, um, I think we're going to have to return to that after we get to what it <gasps> does. That statement. Oh, my gosh. I'm scared. Okay, so, okay. according to Dr. Francis Kelsey... In response to her questions about the possible side effects of peripheral neuritis, Dr. Murray replied that thalidomide was a better alternative than barbiturates and even claimed that if Marilyn Monroe had taken thalidomide instead of a barbiturate, she'd still be alive. Okay, well, I mean, (laughs) 
Ah, this guy is just a real thalidomide uh, <laughs> activist, I guess. <laughs> Such a weird argument. It's like, well, you can't overdose on it, so it's good. I mean, wasn't she also like on a ton of other drugs or something? I don't actually know. I, I, I don't think we can get into okay. the death of Marilyn Monroe. I know literally nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's also like, yeah, maybe if she hadn't taken a bunch of barbiturates, she, you yeah. know, whatever. Oh, boy. Then on November 30th, 1961, Dr. Murray of Merrill informed the FDA that they were withdrawing the drug from the market. Okay, good. Francis says, I remember very well when he called and told us about the information they had received from Germany, possibly linking the drug with birth defects. Oh, no. I was, I admit, very surprised. This was what we had been wanting to make sure would not happen with the drug, yeah. and it appeared it had. Our objections, as I had pointed out, were really on theoretical grounds, largely based on the fact that there was no evidence that it was safe. Until we had such evidence, we had to question the safety. Yeah. So these birth defects that they were finding were known as uh, phocomelia. The word phocomelia means seal limb. It describes an extremely rare condition in which babies are born with limbs that are severely underdeveloped and that look like flippers. They mostly have... (gasps) Not arms, they're just, like, hands coming out of the torso. Oh my gosh, that's so sad. Yeah, if you look up pictures, it's really awful. Oh man. It's really, really awful. Eventually, researchers learned that thalidomide crossed the placental barrier and retarded development of the fetus, whose drug metabolizing enzymes were undeveloped. Great. In Canada and Europe, thalidomide had been on the market for a few years at this point. Although it is extremely uh, hard to gauge how many babies were affected by thalidomide, estimates range into the tens of thousands in Europe (gasps) alone. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Many, many were born without arms or legs, some with no limbs or with withered appendages protruding directly from the trunk. I know. Some had no external ears or deformities of the eyes, the esophagus, or intestinal tracts. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So by delaying the approval of thalidomide in the U.S., Dr. Frances Oldham Kelsey and her team had saved thousands of babies in the U.S. from a similar fate. By looking at birth statistics, the FDA could associate 10 cases of phocomelia with the thalidomide that was released for clinical trials in the U.S. Essentially... The company Merrill had sent out thalidomide to the U.S. Um, to about a thousand doctors for like clinical trials, not really telling them that they haven't hadn't actually been approved oh God, in the U.S. yet. So crazy. And so there was ten cases of this in the U.S. associated with these drugs that they had uh, wow. delivered to doctors. And then there were seven, roughly seven cases of those who had actually gotten the drug overseas and then come back to the U.S. It's like they just wanted to, like, be rich and be, like, I don't know. That's such a weird thing to just go around all this. Like, why wouldn't you just be like, yeah, let's wait and see if it kills people. That was not on anyone's radar yeah. to actually wait. That Like, they had gone through some trials and stuff mm-hmm. like that for it being used as a sleeping pill, but they hadn't actually looked at its effects, I think, long-term yeah. or its effects on pregnant women oh using it. Gosh. Um, and so it had gotten approved, and then I think they started saying, well, you should also... It also seems to work for morning sickness, so you should do right. that, even though they Tested. hadn't... Yeah. Then it was already on the market, and they didn't then go through additional trials to see if it was safe for pregnant women wow yeah so over the past uh five or six years at this time there had been tremendous fighting over new drug laws however after this period where we discovered the effects of thalidomide all this controversy suddenly melted away and there were 1962 amendments were passed almost immediately and unanimously And these 1962 laws required tighter proof of the safety and effectiveness of new drugs, full disclosure of side effects and generic names, and swift removal of unsafe drugs from the market. Wow. And so this was all in response to thalidomide. Oh my gosh, that's great. 
And for her endeavors in investigating the safety of thalidomide, Frances received the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service in wow. August 1962. Oh my gosh. She was the second woman to ever receive this award. Yeah. President John F. Kennedy acknowledged, quote, her exceptional judgment in evaluating a new drug for safety for human use and has prevented a major tragedy of birth deformities in the United States. Wow. Through high ability and steadfast confidence in her professional decision, she has made an outstanding contribution to the protection of the health of the American people. Oh, that's great. Frances continued to work for the FDA for another 40 years. Oh my gosh. She moved on to head the investigational uh, drug branch. And from the late 1960s until the 1990s, she led the Division of Scientific Investigations, which oversaw clinical investigators, ensuring the scientific integrity of the data used by the agency to make decisions about the safety of new drugs. During this time, her group made notable contributions to the safety and well-being of Americans. She worked to investigate drug trials done in prisons which led to regulations that limited prison oh studies. Gosh. Additionally, she helped formalize and regulate the need for drug companies and clinicians to get explicit informed consent <laughs> of any patient participating in a drug trial. So crazy. So before, you didn't have to actually give them informed consent. Like, you didn't have to tell them well, what you oh were giving my them. Gosh. Oh, boy. So, you are so unethical. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There's this great resource that's like a hundred pages of it's like transcripts of her talking about all of her different phases in life and it's so interesting i read the whole thing i like didn't even i just didn't write things i was just like i gotta read more and she like talks about the prison system and like how i mean we can't even get into like how unethical all those experiments yeah all of those experiments were and like that situation but yeah so they she did a lot working to actually investigate those drug oh trials gosh, in prisons. That's so um, great. Yeah. So in 2000, Dr. Kelsey was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Aww. Fame, joining the ranks of Helen Keller, Eleanor Roosevelt, Margaret Mead, and other wow. luminaries. She retired in 2005 after 45 years of serving the FDA. And in 2010, was honored by the FDA as the first recipient of an award that continues to be given annually in her name. Oh, oh my gosh. On August 6th, 2015, at the age of 101, Ontario's Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowd as well visited her home to present her with the insignia of Member of the Order of Canada for her (laughs) role against the litamide. I didn't even know Canada had orders. Like... <laughs> you you know i don't know Honestly, i don't know a lot about canada Canada's, canada's so weird like it's part of the uk monarchy like <laughs> yeah it's like, got a know, lot it's like french influences yeah. english influences um, that's cool though but then kelsey died at her home less than 24 yeah. hours after receiving whoa uh, this award that's pretty crazy and that's the story of Dr. Kelsey Oldham. Oh my gosh, she like of Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey. Yeah, I can't believe she um basically revolutionized our whole drug administration system, right? And like testing. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I yeah. yeah. So I had heard about. I didn't realize that. Like, I didn't know what the drug thalidomide was, but I had heard about the morning sickness medication that had then caused a lot of deformities yeah i've heard i've definitely seen like um francis oldham and thalidomide babies together a lot like doing re- uh-huh. you know researching like who to talk about in the next episode or something but i'd never you know gone deeper into it so i'm glad we finally did that's so yeah yeah it's i mean it's kind of crazy. We kind of just used to experiment by just giving things to people and seeing what happened. <laughs> yep. Yep. I think it's also remarkable, like, she was really wise in taking the time to really investigate this drug. Yeah. But I think it's amazing how many things had to align for that situation to happen. Right. Like, she was... I think probably one of the most qualified people to actually look at thalidomide because of her background looking at, you know, quinine and pregnant rabbits. And like, she just 
had to go to school so much because she couldn't get a job that she had so much knowledge in like all areas right. so that when and she also like this was the like second thing that went on her desk when she got to a new job so she didn't have a big backlog she wasn't already crushed by the bureaucracy of like the fda Mm -hmm. or like the drug companies putting a lot of pressure on you so she i don't think was she was coming in with fresh eyes at that point so i think all of these things lined up for her to be able to take the time to look at this and reject it yeah i don't think she felt the pressure to just quickly accept it as much as she might have in other circumstances. So, right. yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and, like... And horrifying. Yeah. But she obviously also had a sort of different set of ethics than maybe a lot of people at the time, mm-hmm. where she thought, you know, we need to be more careful, we need to make sure drugs are safe before administ- administering them to the public, or, like, to mm-hmm. a broader swath of the public whereas some people might have just not cared you know like we'll try it out we'll see what happens if we see bad side effects then we'll stop the drug she just had Mm -hmm. a different mindset and then um luckily was able to convince people like her mindset is a little bit more ethical broadly speaking i guess yeah this is why it's important to have to fund oversight and government agencies. I know. Yeah. So that they have enough people to actually do due diligence yeah, and prevent things, things like this. Effectively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <sighs> so yeah, I know I talked a lot about her like earlier stuff, but I think all of it was so important for yeah, like, how for she got story, to where totally. she was. So Yeah, it's really interesting yeah. too. Yeah. And I thought it was going to be quick because all of the stories are, like, just about this one thing she did, which is super important. Yeah, but right. it was only once I actually read her transcripts of conversations she's had that I was like, oh, man, she's done so much stuff. Yeah, that's really crazy. Yeah. yeah. It was, it's a fun read. Nice. She's very sassy. I liked her a nice. lot. So if you're interested in reading it, it's, like, a quick read because it's double-spaced. So it's, like, 50 pages. What's it called very again? Good. I don't know. It's just, like... The FDA oh, has oh, consolidated the, yeah. all of the transcripts okay. about and like put them in order of, of her life. So when she's talking about different stages, that's cool. Um, nice. Yeah, I love stuff I'll like that. <laughs> yeah, I wish there were really more cool. things like that. Anyway, it's okay. Yeah, this was like a jackpot once I found yeah, it. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, should we work? work? Yeah. Work, 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 work. <laughs> All right, this is our Women Who Work section where we give a shout out to a badass lady making history and science today. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Something like that. So, uh, let's see. My shout out this week goes to Dr. Erin Michos, who was the senior author of a study published this or a couple weeks ago in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Um, Ooh, it's a medicine episode. Yeah, I know. This always happens somehow. I know. We're always, like, (laughs) synced up. We don't mean it to. Yeah. So, let's see. So, this study, um, a group of researchers from Johns Hopkins, John Hopkins, (laughs) I'm, like, adding 10 (laughs) S's, John C. Hopkins, (laughs) found that there is no evidence that any specific supplements or diets increase longevity or protect people from heart disease. Wow. I know. Okay. Well, they're okay. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but here's what they did. Okay. Lay it on me. They analyzed data from 277 randomized clinical trials. Okay. That together was like, a combined over 900,000 study participants. Um, oh it's like their sample size. Yeah. World, worldwide. In total, like all of these trials had studied 16 specific vitamins and eight diets, um, including general multivitamins uh, or just single vitamins like vitamin A, calcium, vitamin D, omega-3s, etc. And then diets like not even just, they didn't really study fad diets, but more like diets doctors would put patients on, like the Mediterranean diet, a reduced salt diet, um, uh-huh. reduced fat diet, stuff like that. 
And so they were looking at specifically whether these supplements or diets would uh, actually have an effect on longevity or heart health. And overall, they found no like really strong trends Hmm. with any like one supplement or diet, but they did find a few kind of weaker trends. Okay. So they saw that um, a low salt diet was associated with a lowered risk of death due to heart disease in people with and without high blood pressure. So that was interesting. So I will never submit to a low salt diet. I know. I love salt. I so would much. rather I die. Rock. Yeah. <laughs> I love salt. So. I know me too. I mean, but it wasn't. They were pretty much like I a lot of these like associations they found they were kind of like, you know, take them with a grain of salt. Haha. <laughs> ha. uh, uh, they didn't make jokes like, like that. No, I did though. Okay. Good good. Just now. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but they were just like but these are some trends that were significant, but again like it's hard to say what, what that means necessarily. Mm-hmm. They also found some evidence that omega-3 supplements were associated with reduced coronary heart disease. Okay. But this association wasn't very strong. Mm-hmm. And they also found that when people took a combined calcium and vitamin D supplement, the risk of stroke increased, which was kind of scary. Huh. So, but could be interesting, like people who are at risk for stroke might not want to take, you know, tons of calcium and vitamin D, which is like, so many things are fortified with calcium and vitamin D now, like milk and orange juice that, you know, it's kind of interesting or something. Can't have any cereal. Yeah, cereal. My lucky charms aren't so lucky. Lucky charms are fortified with calcium and vitamin D. I think all cereals now essentially are. Anything General Mills is like... This isn't an ad for General Mills. But Um, Lucky Charms are delicious. It's like, here, have some calcium with your sugar. Like, (laughs) Yeah. I keep trying to win the only all marshmallows Lucky Charms. You can Wait, like, don't they just make those now? Can't you buy those on no. Amazon or something? Can you? I think you can. That's what I'm doing as soon as we hang up this call. <laughs> uh, but just like find ones that aren't fortified with calcium and vitamin D. Okay, okay, okay. We'll do. Um, yeah, so, but essentially this was like a pretty major study because industries like Vitamin industries are like uh, making billions of dollars yeah. off of people, basically. And honestly, there's not really a lot of evidence that they do anything. Mm-hmm. Whereas heart healthy diets might be more important to actual heart health and longevity. Yeah. Which, even though, which is confusing, that's what they said. But then the diets that they studied, the only one that was really kind of had any major effect with the low salt diet. So, hmm. um, you know, it's kind of, but I don't know. I think there's still something to say for like lower calorie diets being better for your heart health, but yeah, but I'm not sure if they studied just the effects of low cal in general or something. And they didn't study the effects of weight. It was just like specifically, uh, vitamins and specific diets. So hmm. anyway, pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the whole vitamin thing. There's so many people who take so many supplements. Like you yeah. need to take a supplement if you are actually deficient. Like being deficient right. in a certain thing can cause a lot of problems. But generally, unless something really weird is happening, like my friend who could only afford to pay for two out of three things housing food or his new tattoo and he decided to go with housing and his new tattoo and just bought a bag of rice um what for like two months or something and only ate white rice and then woke up one morning bleeding from his orifices (gasps) 
because he what? had scurvy. What an idiot. He got, and then his he called his mom and she's like, yeah, just eat a lime. And then he was fine. So just make Don't lemon do rice. Just make lemon <laughs> rice and then you're fine. <laughs> lemon rice. Oh my God. That's like really dumb. Not going to lie. That's pretty stupid. Yeah. But, you know, to each their own. Sorry, I'm being judgmental. To each their own. When you start doing self-inflicted bleeding from your orifices, I think you can be a little judgmental. You need to, like, check it's very yourself, fixed, you know? Before you wreck yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, in those cases, make sure you have the right vitamins. But generally, if you're eating any sort of variation, yeah. you don't really need vitamin supplements. Right. I don't know about the pregnancy and folic acid thing. I think you probably still need that. Because that's a yeah. I think there are specific vitamins that have been shown to like be really important to health, and mm-hmm. like they're sometimes hard to get from food. But yeah. things are so fortified with vitamins now; it's kind of like most people aren't deficient in any vitamin. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's anyway. interesting. Yeah, don't go buy a multivitamin. I guess unless your doctor specifically tells yeah. you to. <laughs> Save your money. Which, actually, doctors are constantly telling me to buy multivitamins. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that contain calcium and vitamin D and, like, all these things. So, it's pretty interesting that a group of doctors did this study that's like, huh, maybe we're over-prescribing these things. I don't know. Some things, I think, just get into the culture. Uh-huh. And, like, it doesn't hurt you to take vitamins except on your like, in your wallet. Well, or, like, exactly. if you have a stroke. True. Yeah. But for most most part, it's one of those things that, like, they just say better safe than sorry, but it really... Yeah. There's a lot of studies that say that it doesn't really do anything unless you actually need a specific vitamin. Right. Like, it's almost like a just-in-case thing that we all do. Because, like, you don't know you're deficient in a vitamin until you feel terrible or something, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I also have another friend who was in a like long distance relationship so they were on like opposite Uh time schedules and so he essentially didn't see the sun for like a year and got a vitamin (gasps) d deficiency yeah that got really bad so just like go out in the sun and yeah get outside eat fruit eat vegetables eat cheese or something with calcium occasionally you know yeah i like that we're now giving like diet (laughs) no we know we know all the answers yeah we're (laughs) We're professionals. <laughs> yeah. Professional nutrition. We're doctors, so we can give you nutritional advice now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Before we give any more advice, we probably should. Um, Do you have? I read a summary article of this paper, so I know everything <laughs> about this now. <laughs> I'm an expert. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I better get back to packing. Yeah, I got to go buy these um, only marshmallows. Yeah. We got things to do. We got things to do, but as always, thank you for listening. And if you like this episode, remember to rate, review, subscribe, write us a review. We will read it. It will bring us joy during our long travels and lonely nights. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So Okay. I don't know why I said that. Uh, And also I want to give a shout out to Caitlin Friesen for our art, an artichoke for our music. And as always, you can go stimulate yourself. Stimulate yourself. Circa 18